Well, happy birthday, America. Welcome to the uh, July 2nd edition of the Immigration Hour here from Cook Baxter Immigration. This is your host, Charles Cook. It's great to be with you again. Uh, I love July 4th. I love celebrating America. You know, I was, uh, when I was a young man growing up in the uh, late 60s uh, in the, outside of New York City in Jersey, uh, we had an event, uh, and the Boy Scouts were invited. I was a new, brand new Boy Scout then, uh, and um, there was a protest uh, uh, con- across the road from where we were as Scouts uh, with people burning the flag. Now I, you know, I respect the people's right to do that, and I understand the politics of the time, but it made me look at what America's potential was, what America could and should be. Uh, and I, real, I think I realized then, perhaps for the first time, how much I love this country and how much it means to me and to my family. Uh, my dad is a first-generation American. Uh, he is born in Brooklyn in 1935. His parents had immigrated to the United States, uh, Herman and Bertha Cook from Germany. My grandfather in late 1929, the week before the stock market crash. Congratulations, Opa. Uh, and my grandmother in 1931. Uh, they were one of the very few that could get in through the extraordinarily restrictive immigration program that was then in place. But they were white Northern Europeans, so they were they were able to get to the United States. And uh, they got here uh, from Germany in the midst of uh, the beginning of the rise of Hitler uh, and during an incredible economic hardship in Germany. And my grandfather was always appreciative of the opportunities this country gave him. And he managed to build a series of businesses that provided for him and, and, his, and my, my grandmother to live great lives in the United States. Uh, my grandmother died about uh, 15 years ago at the age of 94. Uh, and she, uh, you know, she was taken care of for her whole life because of how hard they worked and because of what America provided for them. My dad himself uh, served uh, in the military and uh, he just loved America. Uh, sometimes we let that love of America diminish other people. Uh, sometimes we let that something that we love that we, we can't let be criticized. Um, and I think we have to, to, to wear two different hats at the same time here. One is a love of our country, but the other is also an understanding that we are far from perfect, although we are a lot closer to being really good than a lot of other places. But a lot of other places, there are some other places that are maybe a little bit more advanced than we are. And so I think uh, this July 4th, like any birthday uh, that we have, we kind of recommit to our, uh, um, to our own uh, um, internal clock and say, well, what, where could, what could we be doing? What could we be doing better? Well, you know, this show is about immigration. And, you know, I think about the immigration process that my grandparents went through, not dissimilar to today's labor certification process on my dad's side, my dad's mom and dad, um, that, you know, immigrants are coming today have a much more difficult time in coming. They have a much more difficult uh, road to pursue. Um, and uh, in, um, in dotting all the I's and crossing all the T's, uh, even though the laws then were much more restrictive in numbers, uh, they were a little more flexible in terms of other things. And um, 
I'm, I'm just glad my grandparents don't have to come through today's immigration process and were able to come when they did, which, which makes us then look at today's immigrants. And uh, I think it, it behooves us to remember uh, why we celebrate America, why July 4th was so important, in that we are attempting to throw off the tyranny of a king uh, who was treating his subjects in a faraway land with disdain, uh, with uh, treating them as lesser parts of the greater kingdom. Uh, and we wanted more. You know, you have to wonder where that attitude is today. You know, in the, in the Revolutionary War, we welcomed all that would fight the United States. And there were many immigrants uh, including famously Alexander Hamilton, two of the Americas, that fought for our country um, and that died for our country and that fought for our country. And we have to be very grateful that this has been going on since the beginning, that immigrants have continued to, uh, to uh, be an essential part of who we are. Uh, yet at the same time, we have to think, how can we be treating, how can we be treating uh, the people today that are coming, especially those that are coming to seek asylum, uh, that are coming to uh, try to find a place where they won't die because they have a teenage girl that a gang member wants, that they won't die because they own a business that a gang member wants a, wants a large part of, uh, that they won't be killed for uh, testifying in a murder of somebody they loved as a witness because the police will not protect them. You know, one of the things that came out this last week was perhaps most telling uh, and perhaps most problematic, and that was the information that we found out that uh, we had 350 children jammed into a border patrol station that was designed for 90 or 100. Uh, and then the folks at Customs and Border Protection uh, who uh, then said, oh, we didn't really know, including the head of DHS, we didn't really know what was going on. We, you know, we, we, it's like the ignorance is a defense. It turns out uh, that the Homeland Security Department was warned, including the head of the DHS, was warned uh, of the conditions at that border patrol station and that uh, DHS in May was told, look, uh, the agents there thought that because the conditions were bad, there would be riots, and that's why they carried around M16s when on their patrols inside the jail with children. I mean, how how can we as a country believe that this uh, is anything other than intentional? That this is anything other than um, an intent by the Trump administration uh, to make? the conditions so bad that messages get back that you don't come here. And it, it, it betrays the 
actual wild misunderstanding of the minions under Trump who think this is a good idea, that they don't understand truly the awfulness of the situation where these people are coming from, that they have simply chosen, I think much like people chose Trump as president, the lesser of two evils. They know if they stay where they are, they will die. Uh, and thus, they will simply come here and try for a better opportunity and at least a few more weeks of life. And if they are sent back, so be it. But at least they've tried to secure a better life for their children. You know, these, these numbers, you know, they, they, well, there was 140,000 people that were caught in May. Uh, looks like it'll be somewhere around 113 or 115,000 in June. And they're not caught. They, were, they turned themselves, the vast majority turned themselves in or simply reported at the border and said, I want asylum. And I would love to see, although, and I'm sure they do this, but they won't release these numbers, separate out those who turned themselves in at the port of entry or who literally sat down across the border fence and waited for Border Patrol to come pick them up versus those who were actively trying to enter the United States surreptitiously. And I think those surreptitious entries will be a minimal number compared to those that are, that are seeking asylum. And we, we see... Uh, that because of this, because of how we are treating these immigrants on the eve of our country's celebration, um, the greatest country in the history of the world, uh, that we can't do better than this? Uh, you know, the thing is we can. We know we can. We have in the past done better than this. So we routinely do better than this. But the current administration without getting on a political diatribe, intends for this to happen. This is entirely intentional. It is desired. It is wanted. All you have to do is look back and trace the things that the administration wanted to do over the past two and a half years that have been turned away by the courts and by Congress to gain an understanding that they want to eliminate, eliminate immigration and immigrants from the United States. That is the goal of this administration and everyone who works for DHS. And the sooner you begin to understand that that's the actual intent of this leadership, then I think you will come to an understanding of why this presidency is so dangerous for the United States, uh, economically, socially, uh, familial. We need immigration. We need immigrants. Uh, we're going to spend a little time a little later in the show talking about a very troubling statistic that not many people have focused on yet, but I think bodes ill for the future uh, if you believe that immigration is our secret sauce it is our way of competing with the rest of the world uh, by simply attracting their people, their hardest workers, not just their best and the brightest, but those that want a chance of success, not those seeking welfare from a puny American welfare system compared to other countries, but rather 
those that are seeking a chance for a way to make their life better. We also need to see that the disdain with which we treat people as a country will ultimately come back on us. And yet this disdain um, that the officers that interact with immigrants have for immigrants have been reflected recently uh, in the uh, information disclosed of a private Border Patrol officer Facebook page with wildly racist uh, and anti-immigrant postings, uh, I think is manifest uh, in a post that um, Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez put up this morning uh, when she wrote... (coughs) I can't understand how disturbing it was, understate how disturbing it was, that CDP officers were openly disrespectful of the congressional tour. If officers felt comfortable violating the agreements in front of their own management and superiors, that tells us the agency has lost all control of its own officers. Uh, Congressman Madeline Dean wrote this about, about this tour yesterday. We were met with hostility from the guards, but this is nothing compared to their treatment of the people being held. The detainees are constantly abused and verbally harassed with no cause, deprived physically and dehumanized mentally every day. This is a human rights issue. Um, this is um, <coughs> really remarkable. And yet the disdain from some folks on the right, uh, like Brian Kilmeade's uh, likening the overcrowded detention facilities at the border to having a house party with 100 people and only two and a half bathrooms. And as Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez says, what was the last party you went to where you were, quote, locked in a cage under armed guard, drank out of a toilet, and given food of such poor nutritional value for so long that it gave you mouth sores? Um, You know, this is, uh, it's a remarkable time in America that we have chosen to treat immigrants like this because immigrants are always the canary in the coal mine in America. What we do to immigrants first, we always end up doing to citizens next. Let's take a break here on the Immigration Hour. Uh, We'll be right back with you. Welcome back to the Immigration Hour. You may hear my voice a little strange today. I've been sick the last week or so, uh, and so I will also occasionally stop our podcast so I can call since I don't have a cough button. Put that on the list of things I need to do besides intro music and uh, really funny commercials to ask for money for sponsors, which I don't have. Uh, So the news that kind of came out yesterday was this uh, really strange story that there is a secret Facebook page uh, for Border Patrol employees that hosted racist, sexist, and sexually violent memes about immigrants and officials such as Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Um, this is done by ProPublica. Now it's been picked up by all the other major press out there. Um, the Matthew Klein, an assistant commissioner at the Border Patrol, called the Facebook's gross post disturbing and said that the inspector general of the Department of Homeland Security, which to be his part, will begin or already began an investigation. The post on the private group uh, which includes both current and foreign patrol agents, included remarks about the deaths of migrants, sexually explicit images edited to include Ocasio-Cortez, and xenophobic asides and comments. Um, now, this is um, 
Uh, this is kind of disturbing, don't you think? On a post about one 16-year-old migrant who died in Bushville custody, a group member responded with a crass comment that says, oh, well, and, quote, if he dies, he dies. Uh, one commentator talked about starting a fundraising site to support a board for agents for burritos at Ocasio-Cortez, another lawmaker who were part of a Democratic delegation that visited immigration facilities and detention centers on Tuesday. Um, so as you can imagine, there was lots of, uh, lots of condemnation of the folks at the Border Patrol over this. Um, now, the thing is, I know some Border Patrol agents uh, that are good women and men. Um, but I've also met a few that should not be wearing the uniform of the United States. Um, and in case you wonder, CBP does have a conduct standard, which forbids, quote, making abusive, derisive, profane, or harassing statements or gestures, or engaging in any other conduct, evidencing hatred or invidious prejudice, I guess regular prejudice, to or as fine, is to or about one person or group on account of race, color, religion, national origin, sexual orientation, age, or disability. Um, the Border Patrol Chief of Operations, Brian Hastings, said that, quote, uh, the posts do not represent the thoughts of the men and women of the Border Patrol. Don't let the actions of a few be representative of the whole. Is that what is what I'd ask? And yet, the group has 9,000 members. Now, it does stay former and current, but there's only 20,000 Border Patrol agents. You'd think all the, all the good ones would leave at that point. Um, and uh, it is... Um, Stunning. Uh, even the, the union, what they call the National Patrol Council, that represents a vast majority of liberal agents, said it condemned the inappropriate contents. Um, so this is what they do. You know, the content is people, uh, membership is composed of agents, retired employees, employees who no longer work for the members of the public. And members of the public uh, no, I don't think so. Is not representative of our employees. Yeah. You know, this is, um, this is just a great example of uh, how... How awful this is! How uh, how terrible this is! Now, oddly enough, the ProPublica article is down. Uh, it's uh, it's probably available in the ethersphere out there, uh, but it has been pulled off their web page, and we get a bad gateway address for every uh, link to it. Uh, that's part of this. So it's kind of curious uh, uh, what uh, what they're going to be doing to uh, um, maybe update the article or backing off from it. But I. It seems to me that this is um, this is something that uh, is uh, is absolutely true. Uh, you know, I want to get back to the idea of how we treat these migrants uh, as asylum seekers in our facilities. Now, generally speaking, uh, the congressmen and women really have only seen facilities with women and children. Uh, they haven't really gone to the men facilities, men-only facilities, which you'll see in states like Georgia, in, uh, in Irwin and in uh, Folkestone and in Stewart, uh, where uh, men are segregated there, and the conditions tend to be terrible because each of those is private prison. Well, Irwin is a, state, is a, is a county-owned facility, um, but the reality is they're not going to spend a lot of money as a county to see to the comfort and safety of their inmates. And when you station individuals far, far away from their lawyers, uh, you, know, you know what you end up getting as part of that process. 
Uh, and uh, the, um, the sad part about that uh, is that we have uh, reports of continued mistreatment, uh, continued uh, harassment, uh, uh, sickness. I know the Stewart facility has another outbreaks of the mumps uh, again um, just this week. They had an outbreak a couple, couple weeks ago um, and uh, had to shut the facility down. Uh, and, you know, you don't get the mumps if you're treating people well as, uh, as part of uh, keeping them detained, waiting for their hearing. But we know that that's not happening. We know that's not happening. And the, uh, it's just really um, uh, terrible that what we're seeing as part of this, um, that um, uh, we, the rest of us, are paying the price internationally for that. You know, Reports have come out of Mexico uh, today uh, that the, as part of the agreement with Trump and, and AMLO, the president of Mexico, that we have uh, now had Mexico start filling up empty soccer stadiums, uh, shelters are overcrowded, uh, people are in disgusting, horrible conditions as they wait to be processed in U.S. courts, and we are now going to be sending even more back uh, to the uh, to Mexico, so we are we are now making Mexico complicit, complicit with our treatment of uh, of asylum seekers, and you know you have to wonder is this something that really um, uh, that we can tolerate as a country? Uh, to which point? Um, uh, uh, which point should we be uh, holding hearings? You know, where you know, AOC is a congresswoman. Have a freaking hearing. Bring these guys before them. Make them testify. Subpoena people. Subpoena Facebook and find out who runs the group. Get these get these officers. They know their names. They hooked them up. The ProPublica hooked them up to live people. Bring them on in. Put them on the hot seat. Find out why they still work for the Border Patrol if they hate immigrants this much. Um, now, uh, it, is, uh, it seems to me that uh, the, the problem here is that the administration to not only tolerates this, but allows it, allows it to happen. And when you have an administration uh, that... Uh, so that we could, um, um, so that we could maybe denigrate immigrants more. You know, um, it's really sad um, that this is going on in our country, and it, uh, especially on the eve of our birthday, as we think about what country we really are, uh, it's something that. Um, causes me a great deal of shame as a country uh, and embarrassment, but perhaps more than that, despair that there is a substantial part of our compatriots, our country, but our fellow citizens that think this is a good idea, uh, that this is how we should treat people, uh, that that should concern all of us. 
Some people have been raised to believe this is okay. Some people have developed these beliefs on their own to think that this is okay. Um, and you tend to think about how somebody uh, could claim uh, that um, that America should treat people like this, especially when you talk to fellow Christians. You know, I'm a Christian, uh, and uh, one of my one of my favorite hymns is uh, called uh, in various. Um, uh, uh, congregations, the wayfaring stranger, the poor wayfaring stranger, uh, uh, the wayfaring stranger, man of grief. Um, and that hymn uh, is um, uh, very well known because it, uh, it covers uh, a part of the scriptures uh, where um, uh, we See how we should uh, uh, be treating others, because the way we treat others is the way we uh, we treat the Savior that we worship. And um, it is um, it is something that um, uh, if we as a people uh, don't. Uh, uh, don't do that. We as a people uh, don't um, uh, don't say, look, you know what? If, if I believe that my that the stranger in front of me, you know, is a symbol of the God that I worship, then why am I worshiping that God? Uh, the uh, the words to um, a poor wayfaring man of grief, which is one of my favorite hymns, um, uh, starts out that a poor wayfaring man of grief hath often crossed me on my way, uh, who sued so humbly for relief that I could never answer nay. I had not power to ask his name, where to he went or whence he came, yet there was something in his eyes. And if, um, if we, you know, think about that in the context of uh, 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 the people sitting in our detention, cent uh, detention centers, I think we would, uh, in, uh, I think we wouldn't be having the counter conversation. Yet there was something in his eye that won my love, I knew not why. You know, there are, there are seven remarkable verses uh, to this song. And uh, I think it, you know, might be a good way to start out our July 4th week. Let me read you the rest of this poem, uh, which when set to music, I believe, is a beautiful song. It was written as a poem by James Montgomery in the late, in the early 1800s, and set to music by George Coles. Uh, to an uh, American folk tune. <coughs> and it goes like this. So I've already read the first part. The second. Once, when my scanty meal was spread, he entered. Not a word he spake. Just perishing for want of bread, I gave him all. He blessed it, break. And I ate, but, 
but gave me part again. Mine was an angel's portion then, and while I fed with eager haste, the crust was manna to my taste. I spied him where a fountain burst, clear from the rock. His strength was gone. The heedless water mocked his thirst. He heard it, saw it hurrying on. I ran and raised the sufferer up. Thrice from the stream he drained my cup, dipped and returned it running over. I drank and never thirsted more. Twas night, the floods were out. It blew, a winter hurricane aloft. I heard his voice abroad and flew to bid him welcome to my roof. I warmed and clothed and cheered my guest and laid him on my couch to rest. Then made the earth my bed and seemed in Eden's garden while I dreamed. Script, wounded, beaten nigh to death, I found him by the highway side. I roused his pulse, brought back his breath, revived his spirit, and supplied wine, oil, refreshment. He was healed. I had myself a wound concealed, but from that hour forgot the smart, and peace bound up my broken heart. In prison I saw him next, condemned to meet a traitor's doom at morn. The tide of lying tongues I stemmed and honored him mid shame and scorn. My friendship's utmost zeal to try. He asked if him, for him, I would die. The flesh was weak, my blood ran chill, but my free spirit cried, I will. Then in a moment to my view, the stranger started from the skies. The tokens in his hands I knew. The savior stood before mine eyes. He spake, and my poor name he named of me, Thou hast not been ashamed. These deeds shall thy memorial be. Fear not, thou didst them unto me. Perhaps we, if we had political leadership that understood not Christianity, but what it means to be a human being, we wouldn't be having the situation today on our southern border. We'll take a break here on the Immigration Hour, and I'll be right back. Welcome back. Um, you know, we touched on this in the last segment just briefly about uh, CBP now beginning to send Central American immigrants um, to Tamaulipas in Mexico under the migrant, quote, migrant protection protocols. That's a euphemism that uh, will long live in infamy. Uh, Tamaulipas is, uh, is a drug and violence-torn state on Mexico's Gulf Coast, just south of Houston. Uh, but our own State Department has a travel advisory that says this, quote, do not travel due to crime and kidnapping. Quote, violent crime such as murder, armed robbery, carjacking, kidnapping, extortion, and sexual assault is common. Gang activity, including gun battles and blockades, is widespread. Armed criminal groups target public and private passengers buses as well as private automobiles traveling through Tamaulipas, often taking passengers hostage and demanding ransom payments. Federal and state secure officers have limited capability to respond to violence in many parts of the state. Um, that's where we're sending these women and children back to. Um, the, uh, uh, in the week since Mexico signed a pact with the U.S. to stop migration, conditions in detention centers have deteriorated dramatically, according to diplomats and human rights uh, uh, officials who have visited the facilities. Uh, this is where it really gets hairy <clears throat> in the context of 
how we're going to deal with it because it doesn't appear that uh, people are going to stop coming uh, unless the Trump administration ad- readopts the policies of the uh, of the Obama administration in uh, in bringing back some of the uh, some of the uh, um, uh, money that's given to Central American countries. Uh, for development, uh, for schooling, for even advertising about don't coming, uh, we're the, the, the only advertising that's being done, the only only works being done of those from the uh, trafficking groups who are who are Trump is right. They are making millions on this, um, and um, it is something that is going to be uh, uh, it's going to imbue to Trump's whatever is left of Trump's legacy. Uh, it's going to be uh, even worse. Now, in this final segment, I want I want to delve into this. Uh, the Supreme Court uh, on on uh, last week ruled that um, the Trump administration could not ask the census question about citizenship. Now, I uh, those of you who don't know me personally, I am really into family history. I love family history, and part of family history is trying to figure out where your relatives lived, who they really are, who they're related to. And one of the key documents to do that with is the census. Uh, the census is available 70 years after it ends. It becomes public, uh, public record. And so the, uh, the most recent census to be released was in, in 2010 when it released the 1940 census, the first census on which appeared my mom and dad. And, uh, of course, my first census is not going to be out for quite some time, but uh, um, on, on the 1940 census, uh, they asked the question, country of birth, country of citizenship. They asked it again in 1950, but then they stopped asking it. And they stopped asking it uh, for several reasons. Uh, one, there were a lot more immigrants coming into the country, uh, but it became irrelevant in the context of counting Bodies, the census requires, and the Constitution requires, that a census be completed by April one of each de- decennial year. So this will be by April one, twenty twenty. Uh, the census is taken, and it must count all persons in the United States. Well, we we know that Trump certainly hasn't read the Constitution, and. Frankly, I'm not sure he really can read very well. Uh, But he said this on Monday, that he was looking into delaying the 2020 census over disputes about the legality of a citizenship question. It's not a dispute. It's barred. There's no longer a dispute. So I wish reporters would just use actual language and try to try to euphemistically make something happen. Uh, Speaking reporters in the Oval Office was reported by Politico. The president reiterated his incredulity that asking about citizenship is not part of the census. Virtually, for only two of the censuses of this guy's life have they asked the question, and none since he was adult. So why he thinks it's they don't ask it is beyond me, but again, we'll get into that. I think it's very important, he said, to find out if somebody is a citizen as opposed to an illegal you know, don't you love when your president uses dehumanizing terms? Trump said, quote, it is a big difference to me between being a citizen of the United States and being an illegal. <clears throat> okay, it's a big difference to you. It's not a big difference to literally anybody else, and certainly not any difference at all 
in the context of having the census to count human beings for the purposes of allotment of seats in the United States Congress. You know, Georgia is a great example. If we did not count undocumented immigrants, there is a strong possibility that we lose a seat in Congress. Texas and California both lose several seats in Congress over this. Uh, New York probably loses a seat in Congress. Maybe that's why he wants to get rid of them. That's a good question. Trump uh, has insisted on asking about decision to the consternation of critics and constitutional experts who say that adding such a question would lead to decreased responses and inaccurate counts. Of course it would. Come on. Um, you know, we talked about the Constitution mandating regular counting of all residents of the country, all persons, not only citizens. And that was true back in the day when the Constitution was created. Not everybody was a citizen here. In fact, citizenship was very limited. Uh, if we if we had only counted uh, for all these years, counted uh, citizens and didn't count anybody else, uh, we would have a lot smaller population because African Americans weren't citizens, women weren't technically citizens, non-landholders technically weren't citizens. So there you go. Um, now, we also know that if you ask this question, it's going to reduce the responsive rate. We, we know that. Uh, and um, it, the Trump administration made this farcical argument to the Supreme Court that uh, they needed such a question asked to carry out the anti-discrimination portions of the Voting Rights Act as if they have any history of enforcing the Voting Rights Act at all. I bet you there might not even be a U.S. attorney in charge of enforcing, uh, of enforcing the Human Rights Act. But the Supreme Court sent that back to lower courts and said, look, um, even though Trump raged about this, the reality is he can't ask the question. Now, will he delay it? Well, if he delays it, I guess you'll see complaints in federal court uh, filed by congressmen saying, do your constitutional duty, conduct the census. Uh, this, is, this is really dangerous for us. It's really dangerous to have a president who appears to not care about his constitutional obligations, uh, that doesn't care, that doesn't take losing uh, a legal challenge in a way that a normal human being would, which would be to conform their behavior, which is what the government has always been required to do. When the government loses a case, it conforms its behavior to the judicial branch. That is how the Constitution works. Um, and while there are people in the government like Barr who believe, Attorney General Barr, who believe that Marbury versus Madison is a bad case, uh, I, I think we will have a hard time surviving a re-election of Donald Trump as a country. I think our institutions are fragile and that uh, it simply takes someone like Trump to decide to disobey, to ignore, to uh, simply set aside what he has been told is the law by the other two branches of the government and do what he wants to do. Uh, it is a level of illegitimacy uh, that has spurred the fall of other countries around the world that felt secure in who they are, that felt secure in their democracy. So let's call this a voice of warning um, about those members of this administration who, one, use immigrants as a cudgel um, and as a blame uh, game uh, for problems in the United States. But more importantly, that we should be warned 
that if we don't hold our politicians accountable to the courts and to the people's representatives uh, and call out their injustices, call out their uh, bad behavior, call out their illegal acts, then we are faced with a, uh, a certainty of not only a constitutional crisis, but the decision point, and whether that decision point should be one that will uh, lead us to uh, political conflict within our United States, um, or certainly impeachment of a sitting president in the United States. Now, I couldn't conclude this week's podcast without talking briefly about the presidential debates of this last week and the flurry of Spanish-speaking that was going on. Híjole, qué bueno que hablaban el español. Um, you know, it was a pretty good article read yesterday about Julian Castro about why he doesn't really speak Spanish. I actually met Castro last week, or a week and a half ago, at a conference of the American Immigration Law Association. I had lunch with him. Uh, really great guy. His Spanish is terrible. Uh, but yeah, as my German's non-existent. We're, we, we, me and him are both grandchildren of immigrants. I don't even speak German. I speak Spanish. Prob I mean, I probably speak better Spanish than Julian Castro. Uh, Beto, he's not even Latino, um, and he has learned Spanish. And then Cory Booker, you know, he speaks, you know, he speaks Jersey Spanish, which is good. Good for him. Um, and people are complaining that they were speaking Spanish at the debate. Well, Telemundo was live casting the debate as well. Uh, and so having them speak in Spanish was an intentional thing. Uh, and I think that's important um, because there are a lot of U.S. citizens who do speak Spanish. Million, probably tens of millions that speak Spanish. And doing so is not a bad thing. Um, you know, they all, they, some of them have detailed immigration plans. Um, some of them have uh, um, uh, 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 immigration plans that are in the, in, the, in the mist. And things like, yes, we should have DACA and green cards and a pathway to citizenship. And, but um, I would suggest that we're nowhere near uh, a leading candidate with a solid plan uh, to push Congress towards a resolution, a, a, a bipartisan resolution, which is possible. Uh, which doesn't involve shuffling people off to detention camps, which doesn't involve destruction of families, which, which does involve employers uh, having access to the best employees uh, without having to jump through a thousand different hoops to do so. So I, I, I have hope for this Democratic primary, and we'll see what comes up. It's going to be an interesting next couple of months. Well, I hope you all have a great uh, July 4th week, uh, that you enjoy this week, that you celebrate our country, and you remember why we were formed, why our, our, our colonial leaders were willing to put their lives on the line for a country that they believed had the potential uh, to lead the world to freedom. Uh, we can't let that patriotic zeal uh, be buried in the midst of uh, uh, totalitarianism or desires for big tanks on the mall. Till next week, you all have a great week. This shows Charles Cook of the Immigration Hour.